Attention Life Tips listeners, looking for better ways to become better, smarter, faster, and wiser? Well, listening to Life Tips is a great start, but how about if we gave you an easier way to listen? Introducing the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app, now available for iPhone and Android. Listen to Life Tips and even more programs that will help you build to a better health, wealth, and lifestyle. Download the WebmasterRadio.fm mobile app in the iTunes Store or in Google Play today. Feeling better? Looking better? Making life better? It's Life Tips. We'll explore the latest innovations, introduce you to the latest products, and bring you the tips from experts and environmental pioneers to help you lead a better life. Life Tips. Making your life smarter better, faster, wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the Lighted Show, everyone. Byron here with Mitch Album. Mitch, welcome. Hi, thanks. Appreciate you being on the show today. You're a major celebrity author, one of our biggest and most popular ever being on the Lighted Show here, so thanks for joining us today. All right, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Right on. Your, uh, your new book, The First Phone Call from Heaven, was it a collect call or what? <laughs> tell us, tell us a little no. about the book and the name of the book. Uh, it, it, uh, it's a novel. It's about a small town in Michigan. It's one day wakes up and the phones are ringing. Not only it's people calling from heaven, uh, and they're telling their loved ones that they're okay. Only it only happens in this one little small town. It only happens to a handful of people. And the book follows the book follows what happens when the story sort of leaks out and people discover that there's this town that's getting these calls and uh and then people start descending on the town, the media starts coming in, it starts turning into this big story. And meanwhile there's one guy in the town who's kind of bitter and broken. He's his wife died, he's raising his young son and one day the boy comes home from school with a toy phone and says, when is mommy going to call us? And he becomes so enraged that his boy is being given false hope that he sets out to prove that the whole thing is a hoax. And so you kind of have these two storylines where, one, the story's getting bigger and bigger, it's becoming more and more of a miracle, and everybody's descending on the town, and two, this guy seems to be digging deeper and deeper into what could possibly be behind all this, and it kind of culminates with a big broadcast attempt at the uh, just before Christmas uh, first actual phone call from heaven that everyone in the world is going to hear live on their computers or televisions or whatever just as this guy seems to have cracked the code as to what's going on so it's a bit of a thriller in addition to sort of being a, an inspirational kind of story of hope and that's, I better stop there or I'll ruin the book for everybody there you go tell us a little bit about your selection of cold water Michigan well, Coldwater is a fictional uh, town. There actually is a real Coldwater, but this isn't that one. Uh, but I know small towns. I grew up in small towns, and uh, I live kind of in a small town now. And there's kind of a, a heartbeat to a small town, sort of its own rhythm and personality. And uh, uh, you can really watch a town change when one little thing happens. And so I wanted to examine, you know, when someone has a miracle happen to them in a small town, but not everybody else does. How does the town react, you know? And uh, that's why I chose to set it there. 
how did your strategy have to change in, in creating this sort of heartfelt page turner, which is a little bit different, I think, than some of your other pieces, uh, you know, sort of the thriller aspect of this whole piece? Yeah. Uh, well, for one thing, I had to, I had to write longer. <laughs> I, I, it's 100 pages longer than anything I've ever done before. I think that's because of the plot and the characters. You need to develop it more, but it, it reads very quickly. Um but other than that, not not all that much because you know I've sort of been writing writing novels for a while, and also I've written sports, and you know sports is very much about rising to the crescendo and the peak and the thrill of it all and all over time, you know. So it's not that uh, wasn't that difficult, but it was fun. Yeah. And um, you know. Were, was there any connection here with 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 your famous Tuesday at Maury's book, um, you know, and the concept of heaven and life after death, um, what we do with our time when we're on Earth? I mean, was any of that bottled up in your head and somehow making its way into this ne- in this new piece? Well, sure. I, I don't think it's possible for uh, <laughs> me to do anything that doesn't somehow relate back. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about your your success with promoting books and how you've done it. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I, I don't know that I've done it as well as as some people do it. I mean, I try to. Uh, I put in a lot of time and effort going uh, out and about. I, I, I meet with a lot of people. Um, I do a lot of speeches and talks and things like that, not always at bookstores. Um, the, uh, the, um, like, for example, a couple books ago, uh, I wrote a book about things, and we ended up, uh, it was, part of it was about a, a church in Detroit. It's a true story that house homeless people that slept on the floor. And so when we went around the country, we went to like 60 different cities, which was pretty extensive. And every place we went, we always did a talk at a homeless shelter or at a, at a similar church or at a soup kitchen or something, which was kind of unusual because these aren't places where you usually have books, you know, but we gave out books to everybody. We didn't sell them. We just gave them out. And we talked about the lessons there. And I think that that was somewhat different, you know, um, and, uh, you know, I don't just do a typical book signing when I go out uh, and sit behind a desk and sign copies. I always talk and take questions and, and try to tell stories. So I try to continue the storytelling even when I'm out in what you call the promotional part of it. I wanted to ask you about storytelling and how you configure or map out a story that you're going to tell. Do you start from the beginning of the story, the end of the story, or the, or the characters, obviously, are the key component to a story? Tell us about the art of storytelling and how you approach it. Well, for me, I try to find out what the theme is going to be that I want to write about. What do I want to explore as an idea? Not what character do I want to develop or anything. That might be a little bit different between me and some other novelists. Uh, to me, if I don't have sort of an overall point, uh, and kind of a lesson that I want to come out of it. There's no point in me sort of pursuing the book. I don't have enough desire to do it. So in this particular book, for example, the first phone call from heaven, I was thinking about the the power of the human condition of voice, you know, that was taken for granted all the time, especially in a world where we're texting everybody and nobody's actually talking to anyone anymore. But the power of the voice is so strong, and I had this brought home to me 
when my mother suffered a series of strokes about three years ago that left her without her voice. And she hasn't spoken since, and I haven't heard her voice since, even though she's like five and I could hold her hand. I'm not sure she knows it's me, but I look at her and I try to get her to make a sound. She can't speak at all and really miss her voice. You know, this was someone who was just a whirlwind in communication. And now, even though she's still alive, without that voice, such a huge part of her missing. And it's the reason that people, I think, save answering machine messages when somebody dies. And they, you know, even if the message is something really mundane, uh, they keep it because they want to have it around. And, and uh, you know, so I had that as a backdrop. I wanted to say, okay, you know, that keeping a voice and the belief in heaven, you know, and people sometimes say they hear someone came to them in a dream. And then other people say, oh, that's crazy. That can't happen. And uh, I like the whole concept of, well, if it's a miracle and it happened to you and you think it was a miracle, even a small miracle, then that's good enough, you know. Uh, you don't have to prove it to science. So I took these sort of themes, and that's where I came up with the idea of well, what does the phone start ringing and you hear these voices, and they're, they're giving you a little miracle. How does the rest of the world react to it? How do you feel if the rest of the world doubts you, you know? And, and then the story kind of unravels from the themes as opposed to, Oh, I have an idea for a character. He's going to have an eye patch and the care, and and now what am I going to have him say and and start the story that way? If you know what I mean? It's kind of two different mm-hmm. approaches to storytelling. Sure. The the concept of, of 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 claiming this to be a hoax must have been difficult to weave into the story. Because um, when you're hearing somebody's voice, it's their voice. It's either their voice or not their voice, right? <clears throat> how how did yeah. you bring that into play? To, to bring the controversy and the tension into, into the novel. The tension of... Someone claiming that this is all a hoax, that these calls... Well, because, well, because let's face it, if I told you right now on this call that, oh, by the way, before I spoke to you, I spoke to somebody from heaven, um, and they told me what it was like, would you believe me 100%? No, <laughs> not one hundred percent. Maybe eighty percent. Okay. Uh, well, so in the whatever your percentage is, eighty, fifty, twenty. In that other percent, the twenty that doesn't believe you, there's your there's your tension, there's your controversy because people think, well, maybe he's making it up, and that's exactly what people would do. Did you ever think through, you know, these sort of spiritual uh, people, you know, in creating the book that, are, you know, can claim to speak with somebody that's passed away and and learn these phenomenal things that they would not yeah. normally know? I mean, did, yeah. did that ever come to mind as you were creating this? And what are your thoughts on that? Did that play well, part I, of it? I, yeah, I studied it and I researched it. Um, and it has a small part in the book about, you know, their there have long been people who have claimed this. But I think the difference in what I wanted to do, I didn't want to have someone who could speak for you. I didn't have, want to have someone who you looked at and they said, I, I see your mother, I see your brother, they're here in the room, but you don't see them. The, the whole trick of the book was that people heard the actual voices of their actual loved ones calling them on their actual phone so that it wasn't, well, I don't know if this medium is telling me the truth. It wasn't, I don't know if this fortune teller should be believed. It was people who generally didn't get calls like this, who weren't like that, you know, who weren't necessarily church-going, weren't necessarily religious, and all of a sudden their phones start ringing. That's what made it more believable, you know, and less mystical and more interesting. 
Sully Harding is is one of your main characters, um, right. and you've sort of painted the picture of you know single father, disgraced from a Navy pilot, you know, you know, lost his wife, um, you know. The chips are down, shall we say, for Sully yeah. Harding. Yeah. Um, any reason that you chose that sort of line of character, um, you know, yeah. with the book? Uh, because I wanted, in this town where everybody is jumping on this miracle, I wanted a guy who just was oriented towards life stinks, and there is no God, and there is no heaven, and there is no anything, because how could there be, and what happened to me still happened to me. Uh, he is in prison. When the, when the story begins, he's let out of prison. And waiting for him or is his seven-year-old son and his parents not waiting for him is his wife. His wife died while he was in prison. And, you know, you think about when that something like that would happen. I described it as like learning that the earth is destroyed while you're standing on the moon. You know, you're so, you're so disconnected from it that um, you can't, it doesn't even really hit you until you get out. And so he doesn't believe in anything. And his son starts asking, when's mommy going to call? And so this sets up the tension between him and his son and him and the town. He's sort of, you know, fighting against everything that's taking over the town. And he says, I'm going to prove that this is wrong, not only because it's wrong, but I want to prove that everybody should be as miserable as me. You know, everybody should, should be as, as, uh, as, 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 as stuck in reality as I am. And I'm going to bring... I'm gonna I'm gonna wipe that miracle face off the smile off your face sort of thing. And people are like that, you know, people who are sad and have been hurt and are disappointed, heartbroken, often sort of lash out at things and are cynical and, and sarcastic about stuff, but it's mostly because, you know, they've been hurt. So him having lost everything that mattered to him was very important to set him up to be the person to try to examine it and ultimately without ruining the book, ultimately to see if we can change him or not. At the same time all this is going on, you're kind of challenging the notion of sort of hope and faith and responsibility to one another. Um, is, is that the opposite side of this coin? And, 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 you know, tell us about that challenge. And, and that's taking on some heavy issues here, for sure. Yeah. Well, I always write with, uh, about hope in some way in my books, mm-hmm. you know, even though the stories can get very magical and all over the place. In the end, there's usually a spirit of hope, and, mm-hmm. you know, I think right from the beginning, the very first pages of the book are the phone calls that begin the process. You know, a woman in her kitchen, she gets a call. A, a guy at his office, he gets a call. Uh, and and uh, right from the beginning, people who have read it are saying, oh, I, I was hooked immediately because, you know, I want that to happen to me. So there's people who are reading right at the start who are filled with some hope, saying, I want this to be true. Let me keep reading. Let me find out if it's true. And you you, you use hope as a motivator, basically, mm-hmm. to move people through the pages. Uh, and I think everybody deep down, no matter how cynical or hardened, would like to believe that there's hope for things to be better. So. Mm-hmm. Did you feel any pressure writing the book to, uh, with people that would have obviously perhaps lost somebody in their, that they loved in their lives and want to read this book, you know, much like so many people have read Tuesdays with Maurice, to understand if there's any deep meaning inside the book that might connect with the person that they lost. Well, no, I don't think about that. I don't feel any uh, any pressure for that because a lot of what you just described are my readers, and yeah, they're regular exactly. readers of the last you know five books that I wrote for this one. Exactly, and they look to these books to for some kind of comfort. So. 
I kind of expect that, and uh, I enjoy it, and I'm I'm grateful for it. <laughs> right on. What are you working on next? Well, I always, you know, kind of bounce between things. Uh, I don't just write books, so sometimes I work on screenplays or plays or things like that, um, which I'll be doing next. But the next book that I'm working on is actually going to be set in the music world. Uh, this is my first love, and I've, I've, I've never written about it in any way, even though it's probably something I know better than anything else. And um, I have a storyline that I think will sort of bring all the readers who who expect certain kinds of stories from me. They won't be disappointed, but I'll get to set it in a place that I really love uh, with some background that I'm really familiar with. So that'll be another novel. And um, I'm also working on a book about Haiti. Uh, my experiences there, I operate an orphanage down there that I have gone into my uh, fourth year on now, and it's been very, very eye-opening to work down there. Wow, terrific, great work. You're at the Miami Book Fair um, on November 23rd at noon. Could you tell people a little bit about what you might be talking about? Uh, I'll be talking about a lot of the same things I've been talking to you about, uh, only they'll actually, have, they'll actually have books there. And Scott Terrell is going to be with me, the author of uh, Presumed Innocent. And we're going to be performing with the band, uh, the, the Rock Bottom Remainders, which if people have followed me, they know we've been together for about 20 years. And a bunch of writers like uh, Stephen King and Amy Tan and Dave Barry and, and Scott and Ridley Pierce and other people like that. And we're performing, I think, at 6 o'clock down there. And then on Monday night, I'll be in Fort Lauderdale at the um, library in, uh, uh, in, in Fort Lauderdale, which is uh, interesting for me. We'll be doing a talk there and have book signing. But I used to work in Fort Lauderdale as a... Uh, as a sports writer many years ago in the mid-80s, and I used to go to that library to do my research. So now I'm coming back to talk about a book that's at, uh, I think, 7 o'clock there at the uh, public library on um, whatever the big street is there. <laughs> I forget. You can catch Mitch at the Miami Book Fair on November 23rd at noon, and he will also be appearing in downtown Fort Lauderdale at the uh, Boward Country Public Library at 7 p.m. <clears throat> Mitch, who do you want to get a hold of you? Who do you like hearing from as far as your fan base, and how do you like them to get a hold of you? Oh, there are many ways. I have a, a bunch of different sites and Facebook. And there's a Facebook thing now, and a lot of people contact me through that. So, uh, you know... Uh, that's fine, uh, you know, or emailing through my website is fine. Or sending me letters. I, I love getting letters, you know, that's old-fashioned, but they're fun to open and read. So. Terrific. Well, we really appreciate you being on the show today. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you for all your questions. Right on. Life Tips will be right back after this short break. Ever wondered how you could have access to your own SEO expert, paid search specialist, or social media wizard? Looking for help with your affiliate, display media, or email marketing? Look no further than the folks at Fang Digital Marketing. Fang Digital specializes in both paid and organic search, social media, display, and mobile advertising solutions, and is staffed by industry veterans from Google, Yahoo, and one of the industry's most influential PPC experts. Fang Digital's award-winning staff stays on top of the latest in digital trends and offer tailored solutions so they can audit your progress and build a roadmap to your success. Learn more about their expanding range of full-service strategic marketing solutions at fangdigital.com. That's F-A-N-G, digital.com. Why do over 15,000 small businesses love working with Infusionsoft? 
because we believe in people and their dreams. We empower entrepreneurs and our groundbreaking tools help small businesses grow and thrive. We listen, we care, we serve our customers, and we do what we say we'll do. We're always trying to find new ways to innovate and to improve our all-in-one sales and marketing platform. Most of all, from email to e-commerce, we help small businesses like yours succeed. Go to Infusionsoft.com slash radio to... Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Best Search Strategies. Where our hosts, Jamie Smith and Brian Lewis, discuss state-of-the-art search strategies and tools to help search marketers increase conversion and lower costs. Best Search Strategies. On demand anytime inside the Search Engine Optimization Channel. Only on webmasterradio.fm. And now back to Life Tips. Making your life smarter, better, faster, and wiser. Here are your hosts. Welcome back to the, to the Life Tips Show, everyone. Well, let me start that again. Welcome back to the Life Tips Show, everyone. Byron White here with Adam Mansback. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Are you fired up for Miami? Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm staring out my window at, at driving rain and 50-degree temperatures, so yes, I'm very excited for Miami. <laughs> Now we want to talk about. First of all, it's it's really great to have you on the show today. You're you're a best-selling New York Times author, and we're here to talk today about the dead run. Uh, but uh, you know, I know you're from New York. I won't hold that you against you. I'm from Boston here. But, oh uh, no, I'm from Boston too, man. Oh, good. Well, that's, yeah, I lived in New York for a long time, but let's be clear, I'm a Red Sox fan. So, you oh, know. I was glad, <laughs> glad to hear it. Glad glad uh, you could enjoy the ride with us all this year. Yeah, uh, but you know, living in New York now, what what brought your interest to the to the Mexican Mexican American border where this where this novel is set? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I've been asked that a couple of times since the book came out, and I hadn't been able to articulate it to myself as I was writing it. I knew that that's where this story made sense to be, but I've sort of reflected on it a little more. And what I've realized is that in a lot of my work. Uh, across genres, you know, different kinds of books, different kinds of novels. I'm drawn to kind of liminal spaces in American life, places where uh, things float, where there's ambiguity and it's unclear if a thing is one thing or another, you know, gray areas, so to speak. Um, And that might be adolescence. That might be the sort of... uh, Venn diagram of of family and identity and and race, um, which which are you know topics I deal with a lot. And in this case, it's a more physical space. It's the it's the border, as you say, um, mm-hmm. where you know in some sense uh, this is a place that's off the map. It's not one or the other. It's not entirely one country or the other. Who patrols it and who controls it are very much kind of up in the air and up for debate and. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like a fertile place to, to set a story. 
one of your books, which I've been dying to say on the air here, called um, Go the Fuck to Sleep. <laughs> it's one of the few times I can use that word, Adam, so bear with me. Yeah, no, um, go, go nuts with it. <laughs> I appreciate, thank you so much for naming it that. Um, it, it's a super popular number one, number one New York Times bestseller, but I understand it's also a forthcoming as a feature film on Fox 200. Can, can you tell us about that in your mind as you're a novelist and trying to imagine one of your books becoming a film? Yeah, it's uh it's quite something to contemplate. Um, you know, that book of course is a uh is an obscene fake children's book. Um it's about 14 stanzas. It's about 400 words total. Many of them repeated more than once. So, uh the adaptation process, let's just say is very open-ended. How you make that into a feature film is <laughs> really up for grabs. Um and I haven't seen the script yet. Uh it's being written right now or I, I believe there's a draft in right now. Uh Ken Marino very talented screenwriter and his wife uh, are the team working on it. And uh, you know, I, my my your guess is as good as mine. Um, I did. You know, I'm a screenwriter myself. And at one point, I I did get to go into Fox 2000 and meet with them and and give them my take on an adaptation, which they politely listened to. But I I, I did not get the job. So I'll be uh, <laughs> I'll be curious to see what they come up with as well. But it's certainly exciting to contemplate the book turning into a movie. Good luck with that. I hope it works out. How does that process work? Are are you compensated? I'm curious. Of course you must be, but is that negotiated up front, or how does that work? It's kind of interesting. Well, you know, we were in a very unique position with that book, both in terms of selling the movie rights and really every other element of it, because the book, uh, strangely enough, became a hit and something of a phenomenon before it had actually been published. Um, in 2011, uh, April of 2011, I gave a, a reading, a public reading from that book at a museum in Philadelphia. This was about six months before it was scheduled to be published. Uh, I had just gotten the finished illustrations from Ricardo Cortez and Akashic Books was literally at that moment sending it out to be printed overseas. And I decided I would read it and, you know, see what happened. And the response was kind of tremendous and people from that event went home and started ordering it online. The Amazon page had just gone up. Um, and by the end of that week, it had hit number one on Amazon, but the physical book did not exist yet. Hadn't even been printed yet. So, uh, it stayed at number one on Amazon for like the next six or eight weeks. It came out in June. Um, and so, you know, we had a lot of heat and, and at the same time, had no idea whether the book was going to have legs, whether it was going to be a flash in the pan. We sort of assumed when it hit number one on Amazon, you know, months before the publication date, that it would come and go. And by the time it came out, we'd have to remind people that it existed. But for whatever reason, it sort of remained in the consciousness and the zeitgeist. And we moved up publication to June, got it out in time for Father's Day. And if I recall correctly, before the book was out, uh, we'd already struck that deal with Fox 2000, and uh, you know it was a it was a healthy deal. I, I'm <laughs> I've been well compensated. For it. Congratulations! That's that's an Thanks. exciting story. Very rare one, I might add. I'm sure. Very weird. Yeah, does not happen often. It's terrific. Back to the dead run. Do you think this movie, by the way, this novel is is uh, is film material? I certainly hope so. I wrote it with that uh, in mind actually, much more so than any other book I've ever written. Um, I had sort of a, a three-act structure, and, you know, there's a sequel to that book forthcoming, and 
I think it would look good on screen. Um, we'll see if anybody else agrees with me. <laughs> and and maybe best bet is to not pitch that yourself. I don't know. We'll see. Um, what one of the questions I have for you? You're a screenwriter, obviously. When when yeah. you're writing, are you thinking about people? I mean, how are you putting people in your mind as you're crafting a novel? Um, well, for me, everything really does start with character. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell that to my students all the time, regardless of the genre, whether you're writing an action movie or you're trying to craft a, a poem. Um, there's no plot without character. There's no setting without character. Everything really does come back to the people. And you've got to get a firm grasp on who they are, what their interior lives look like, what their deepest needs and wants are. Um, so for me, as I'm writing, the, the voices of my characters are really my paramount concern. And until I feel like I have a good grasp on who those people are, um, everything else sort of has to wait. Um, even if even even a, 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 a densely plotted book like The Dead Run, which is a thriller, um, it, it, I can't really proceed with it until I have a, a real clear idea in my mind of, of how these people talk, how they sound in my head. Um, I'm not really thinking ever in terms of actors, if, if that was sort of part mm-hmm. of the question. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think I think you box yourself in that way. I mean, you you always have sort of reference points to some degree. You always have... Mm-hmm you know, sort of sketched in versions of who these people might be, or at least what they might look like. But um, I've, I've yet to write anything with an actor in mind. Um, mm-hmm. Among other reasons, the practical one, which is that unless that actor has already agreed to do the thing, you know, it, it doesn't do me any good to write a part for Bruce Willis, send it to him, have him pass, and then not know what to do next. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so it's, it's an interesting process. I'm going through the, the process of casting right now on a script of mine, and it's interesting to, you know, come out of one side of the process outside of, you know, the, the, to, to emerge from just sort of being at my desk and, and writing this thing and then to like look up and start trying to match existing flesh and blood people to what you've created. It's, it's kind of fascinating. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's the process of rewriting with those actors in mind once they are attached, which mm-hmm. is a lot of fun because then you're actually playing to the you know, the strengths or, or, the, or, or against the types or whatever it is of actual people whose body of work you can view and, you know, think about and say, okay, I'm going to rewrite this joke so that this particular actress can, you know, really carry it off the best way possible. Mm. Makes sense. I noticed that music is an important uh, part of one of your main characters in, in the role, uh, Jesse Galvin, a prisoner. Why is music a big role in, 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 in not only this novel, but I believe some of your others as well? Yeah, music's always been very important to me. Um, I think that some of my formative experiences, uh, not even as a writer, but just as a person, have, have been with music. Um, you know, I grew up very much a hip-hop kid. Uh, growing up in Boston in the in the 80s and the early 90s, um, that was really the, the soundtrack to my life, and also really a prime way that I sort of interfaced with the world. And uh, you know that music and its politics and its poetry really shaped the way that I think and the way that I view the creation of art, uh, the collage and pastiche nature of hip hop culture, but also hip hop's willingness, particularly at that time, to speak some of the untold uh, truths about 
injustice in this country. Um, you know, there was a time when I felt like the, the place that I could turn to for the most honest and reliable and raw information on things like police brutality, Eurocentricity in education, white supremacy in general were hip hop. So, you know, I was a rapper and a DJ coming up as a kid and hip hop really made a generation of young people into fans, not only of it, but of all of the other kinds of music from which it drew jazz and blues and funk and rock. You know, we kind of retroactively learned about those things because we wanted to know what hip hop was taking up and using as source material and sampling. So I, I, I developed kind of a wide palette as a listener and as a record collector and as somebody who DJ parties. And, you know, that was very much, um, an analog to the writing I did. You know, I would think about writing in musical terms. What's the tone coloration? What's the instrument? What's the concept of verse and chorus, uh, the soloist and the ensemble? These are things that I really thought about. And then um, jazz is kind of the other musical pole of my existence because for about six years I was a roadie for the late, great Elvin Jones, who is uh, you know, probably the greatest drummer that uh, the planet has ever produced. He was John Coltrane's drummer throughout the 60s, major innovator on his instrument. And, you know, being on the road with him and, and, and his band and listening to these great musicians play this great music every night for weeks and months at a time really uh, was incredibly important to my, to my growth, you know, as a person and also as an artist. So music's always been really important. Um, the character that you mention in the book is a guy who's a prisoner and the only way that he is getting through each day is by sort of picking a song to play in his mind every day um, as like theme music. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, that just for me came from a, from a place of imagining what it would be like to be in prison and be in the situation he's in and what kinds of things you would draw on to keep you going. So, you know, that just seemed like it, it made a certain kind of sense to me. That is one heck of an intellectual answer to a very difficult question. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> that was extremely complex. Um, and probably because you have such deep roots in music. And I just wanted to ask one side note. So I'm a big fan of Billy Cobham and Lenny White. I'm not sure if you know those drivers. Oh, yeah. Or, sure. I, I've, yeah. I've done, uh, done stuff with Lenny White. Really? Um, That's yeah. No, he, uh, he's a great, great drummer. Both of them are yeah. great drummers. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I grew up playing drums for a brief period of my life. And Oh, no uh, just would listen to Billy Cobb and Lenny White over and over mm. and over again and just try mm. to understand their sophistication that was just beyond anything I'd ever listened to. Um, but but back to the music thing, I'm really interested in this. I mean, you know, don't don't you think there's a really interesting opportunity in the art of storytelling to to let music sort of associate itself associate itself with the characters you're writing about and doesn't that association sort of start to define who they are and what they would choose to listen to absolutely absolutely and i think you know for me one of the pleasures of being a novelist is the fact that with each book you get to sort of start fresh and invent a new world and a new soundtrack to that world and for me there's always like a discrete set of influences that is different from book to book but help me define what that book is. And they are, you know, the, the writers and the, and the texts that I want to be in dialogue with, but also a certain set of music as well. So, you know, depending on what I'm writing, depending on where and when it takes place, I'm actually writing to a different soundtrack. You know, it might be salsa, it might be jazz, it might be reggae, um, and it might be all of those things. And it might be different things for different characters. Um, but, you know, I tend to, I tend to write about 
the meeting and the mixing and the conflicts between, you know, different cultures, different perspectives, different people. And there's no better or sharper way to define those things than through music often. So, um, yeah, I, I would even, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I often feel like each character in each of my books, you know, has their own playlist, has their own sort of set of influences that definitely sharpen and define who they are for me and, and hopefully for the reader as well. I want to ask you about storytelling and the art of storytelling, uh, which is, uh, kind of coming back into mainstream of being cool and hip, strangely enough. Mm. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing for us all. But this art of storytelling that you have and sort of unfolding the story and, you know, dripping out the story through the novel, how do you learn that? Or even more importantly, how do you teach that to your students? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, that, that really goes to the heart of it all. Um, you know, I think that, a lot of it is a lot of it is instinctual. I think that who we are as human beings fundamentally to me is storytellers. You know, that has sustained us for a very long time. And if you take that away from us, uh, a lot of our humanity, I think, vanishes with it. So, a lot, you know, we all tell stories every day in, a, in an informal way. And we all have a sense of how information ought to be revealed. An exercise that I do with students sometimes, usually at the beginning of a semester when we're all just beginning to think about what a story is, is to have everybody bring in a joke. It's like, come in and tell your favorite joke. Why? Because a joke is a story. And the way that information is parsed out, it's often very precise. You know, like if you, if you have a kid and your kid, like my daughter right now is five and a half and she's like learning how to tell jokes. You know, there's always that thing that kids do where they give away the punchline at the wrong time or they... They say, you know, they, they, they identify the joke by the punchline, thus giving away the entire joke even before they begin. Um, you know, so I think, I think we all, you know, if you can tell a story, if you can tell a joke, you can, you can do it on paper as well. Um, and I think that a lot of times it's got to do with coming back to the essence of what a story is and why we're telling it to begin with. And then some of the complications fall away. Um, you know, obviously, if you're doing some kind of elaborate plotty thing, like I'm doing in The Dead Run, where, you know, you're juggling four plot lines, and you're trying to end each chapter on a cliffhanger, and you're trying to, you know, parse out this mystery piecemeal, it gets trickier. But I do think that on a basic level, storytelling is something that, you know, is kind of hardwired into us. Um, you know, if something happens to you and you, you know, sit down across from a friend at lunch to tell that story, you have a sense, without having to, like, intellectualize it or think too hard about it of which information is important, what identifying characteristics you have to ascribe to the people in the story, you know, how you set up your punchline or how you deliver your climax. You know, we, we just kind of know how to do these things because we've been doing them all our lives. We've been listening to other people in person and on the stage and the screen and in the pages of books do it. So, you know, I think it, it's kind of about reconnecting just with the essence of what storytelling is. Um, and then all of the craft kind of comes on top of that, or I think it should anyway. You if mentioned, that makes any you, sense. You, yes, yes, another fascinating answer. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but I wanted to ask one que question about the storytelling aspect. Are you, mm -hmm. are you tending to think of the end of the story and where you want to go and, 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 you know, the, 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 the punchline, if you will, and then mm -hmm. working your way backwards? Or are you starting the beginning and the punchline is almost developing as you're thinking about things? 
how do you approach something as monstrous as, as writing a novel like The Dead, the Dead Run? Well, you know, I've tried it in different ways with different books over the years, and I've been sort of hopefully developing a, a, an approach that works better for me. Um, there are books that I've started with absolutely no idea where they were going, <laughs> um, and, and that has been often a frustrating and painful process. I, I, a book of mine called The End of the Jews, which was published in '08. And, you know, probably took me longer to write than every, anything else I've ever written. And, you know, it was just this intense labor of having started too early and then having to figure out on the fly what the real conflicts were, what people were dealing with. And, you know, in the, I got the result I wanted in the end, but it was just painful getting there. And at that point, I kind of resolved to, to, to do a lot more outlining and, and plotting before I entered. And at this point, to take it back to a musical metaphor – I kind of see a novel as, you know, um, I'm not afraid of, of having structure because to me it's like the core changes of a jazz tune. It's a framework for improvisation. I don't think, a lot of writers I think fear that if they, they structure it too much or they have too much of an outline, uh, they'll box themselves in or they'll, they'll lose the ability to kind of like improvise and invent on the fly. For me, I don't think that, is a risk because, you know, it's actually more liberating to have that outline than not to. Um, you know, so depending on, a, on the book, I might, I might know points A, D, F, M, you know, X, and Z, and, and, and the art and the fun will be in filling in all the ones that I don't know. With something mm-hmm. like The Dead Run, I'm writing off of a very – very detailed outline. You know, before I started that book, I had a, a fat paragraph summarizing each chapter because in, I knew that I had a lot of balls in the air. I knew that to really properly write a thriller, which is something I hadn't done before. I'd always been doing literary fiction mm-hmm. uh, before this, and it was this was me delving into a genre. I really wanted to understand the parameters of the genre, and I really wanted to hit all of the notes that a reader of this kind of book would expect. So I knew that I needed to be clear on where my cliffhangers were, you know, how the rhythm of the thing was going to, was going to function. Um, I didn't want to leave anything to, to guesswork. So I had a very structured outline, but still, you know, I still found myself changing it on the fly, um, realizing that I needed another beat or another, you know, kind of note somewhere and, and restructuring it. But, uh, you know, it, it let me write really fast to have that outline. And I wanted, in this case, to be able to write really fast because I, I wanted a certain kind of sustained burst of energy to get me through as opposed to, you know, another project where I might understand that I, I'm in it for the long haul and it's going to take me three years and I'm going to have multiple conceptions of what the book is and not going to recognize the first one by the end. With The Dead Run, I was like, let me, let me knock this out in four months. <laughs> so the outline helped me do that. So great to get inside your head. I have to ask about your political uh, video, uh, Wake the Fuck Up, that was starring Samuel L. Jackson. Tell us about that. That seems like a (laughs) radical departure from some of the mainstream stuff you've been working on. Yeah, you know, that was a lot of fun. Um, Samuel L. Jackson did the audio book for Go the Fuck to Sleep. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I had a relationship with him through that, and a lot of people really uh, appreciated the fine work he did on that <laughs> project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he and I were similarly 
aligned politically in wanting to see Obama be reelected. So it came about when, uh, when a, an organization, uh, that was interested in putting an ad together and using go the fuck to sleep to riff off of got in touch with me. Uh, you know, they, they had basically the title in mind and, and, and not much else. Um, and they were asking my permission to use go the fuck to sleep, which was very nice of them. They didn't really have to do that. You know, um, it would have, it, it wasn't anything that I would have been able to sue them on because, you know, parody is, is usually sort of, uh, permissible. Um, but uh, I said, basically, you know, if you guys are going to do that, I want to be the guy who writes it. And so I started working on them to conceptualize what the ad might be. And this is the same org. They're called the, the JCEF, uh, and they had done a lot of other political ads. They did a great one with Sarah Silverman in previous election where she is basically making an appeal to the, the Jewish grandparents of Florida and explaining why they should vote Democratic. Um, and, you know, I, I, I sat down and I, I started working on the piece and it became clear to us pretty soon that, that it was always going to be celebrity driven because that's kind of what they do. Uh, you know, and as it developed, it became clear that Sam was the guy, um, that it made the most sense for us to grab him. So we, we got in touch with him. The director of the piece is a guy named Boaz Yakin, who actually directed Sam in the movie Fresh about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we reached out to Sam and he was down. He wanted to do it. And it all came together very quickly, you know, like from the, from the first phone call that I had to, to being on the set shooting it was probably three weeks. And it was, it was fantastic. You know, Sam is a great dude and it's amazing to be in the presence of anybody who does anything really well, you know, and this was a, a one day shoot, but it was a big shoot. It was like, you know, there were 70 people. We had a whole house, you know, full crew. I'm just the one useless dude standing around like doing <laughs> nothing, you know, by the catering table, hoping mm-hmm. nobody changes my lines around. And, you know, <laughs> Sam showed up and just the first time that in rehearsal, he delivered his first set of lines, the whole mood in the room changed dramatically because it was like, oh shit, this is going to be good. Like just the performance that he gave, you know, reading these four lines, you know, to, to this kid on it or to the kid's parent on the couch, you, there was just a sense of elation that set in and lasted for the next eight hours that it took us to film the thing because he just, you know, he's, he's great at what he does. And when you're in the presence of somebody who's just a master, whether they are, you know, an actor or an electrician or a musician, it doesn't matter. You see that and it just, it amps you up. So, from then on, I felt like everybody, despite the hard work involved in shooting the thing, everybody was just like psyched. And everybody was working for free. Everybody was doing it, you know, out of a mutual desire. So the vibe on the set was really cool. And I think what we, uh, what we ended up with was great. And it, you know, made some impact. Uh, we got something like 2 million views in the first 24 hours and, you know, a, a lot of media coverage. And uh, later on, we found out that Obama was a big fan of the spot and does a good Samuel Jackson impression. So that was always, uh, that was gratifying to find out as well. <laughs> good stuff there. Uh, what's next for you? Um, what are you working man. on? And, and can we pre-buy it? <laughs> <laughs> you can always pre-buy it. I'm working on a couple of things. Uh, I'm working right now on a sequel to The Dead Run, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm just getting my feet wet on. Um, I'm doing two uh, middle grades books that I'm co-writing with a guy named Alan Zweibel, who's a, who's a brilliant comedy writer, one of the original writers on Saturday Night Live and a lot of other things. He and I are collaborating on a, a, children, a, a young adult or a middle grade series 
the first book is called Benjamin Franklin, Huge Pain in My Ass. And it's about a kid who uh, begins exchanging letters across time with Benjamin Franklin. Um, I'm also working on a couple of screenplay projects. Uh, I just adapted one of my favorite children's books, which is called The Pushcart War for Park Pictures. And hopefully that'll be uh, hitting the screen sometime soon. So I'm just uh, just juggling multiple projects as usual and trying to, <laughs> try to get a little bit of work done every day. Terrific. Well, it's been really great having you on the show today, Adam. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Once again, you're on Saturday. You are at November 23rd. You're at the Miami Book Fair, correct? That is correct. Friends, fans, <clears throat> enemies, whatever, can line up and <laughs> say hello to you and, and, uh, and, and, and get to know you there. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. It's a public event and it uh, should be a lot of fun. Terrific. Well, best of luck with your continued incredible success. And uh, it's great having you in the show. We'll look forward to having you back sometime. Thanks, Adam. Absolutely. Thank you. Look forward to the next. Until next All week, right. everybody, hope, you're, hope your life is a little smarter, faster, better, and wiser. Um, look forward to chatting with you soon. Thanks. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.